Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do help us to understand your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to give a slightly unusual and complex set of talks when I combine two kinds of talks into one in these three sessions this uh, couple of days. Uh, I'm going to talk on a series of topics, slightly different from what you may have in the books, that is, what is the gospel, what is evangelism, why evangelise? But I'm going to do it at the same time as expounding three or so chapters of the scriptures, that is, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 4 and 5. Not that these three chapters answer those three questions, uh, but that these three chapters will bring some uh, concentrated data into our discussion, into our thinking, into our understanding of what is the gospel, what is evangelism, and why evangelise. To answer those questions from the Bible, there's many other passages of the scriptures that would need to come in as well to give a, a balanced, total, biblical answer to the questions. But these three chapters would have to be included in the kind of data of answering the questions. In the meantime, though, I'm not really just expounding these three chapters for you. Uh, I'm aiming to speak to these three chapters in terms of those questions. Now, whether this is successful or not, well, um, most of you are going to leave Sydney, so it doesn't matter, does it? Uh, But let's see if we can do it. Today we're looking at what is the Gospel, and 2 Corinthians 3 in particular. So let me start off with a question, uh, what is the Gospel, or rather start off with the question, what is a Gospel? Uh, The word Gospel comes from angel, Uh, it means announcer, messenger, message. It's an announcement, it's important news, it's great news. It's, from the point of view of the speaker, good news. You don't make a Gospel of bad news, you only make a Gospel of good news, great news. Uh, News of conquest, news of victory, news of enthronement. Uh, It can be personal news or it can be political news that brings great joy. It's meant to be good news for the recipient. Though sometimes, of course, it's bad news if you're the one that's just been conquered. It's connected to the word promise. Uh, Euangelion... has before it then the concept of the epigurum. It's the, the promise, because the great news is not just great news as to what's happened, but it's the kind of great news that is going to affect the future, change the, the, where you're going from here on in. So it's, it's more than information. The very telling of the news changes the situation that you are in and brings new order to life. So, Here's a personal gospel. It comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought to us the gospel of your faith and the love and and reported that you are always rememberous and kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. So now we live if you're stand. But that's the gospel. We wouldn't use the word gospel for that, but that's how the New Testament uses the word gospel, amongst other ways. It's great news. Paul was very distressed. He was very worried. He was very anxious for the Thessalonians. And so when Timothy comes and announces to him the Thessalonians are standing firm under persecution, that's, that's a gospel. 
That's great news. That's good news. Most of the references of the Gospel in the New Testament are more public, big political pronouncements of kings and of kingdoms, and especially of the kingdom of God. Uh, some months ago I, I just traced my way through the concordance on gospel and I, I'd encourage you to do it as an exercise, not just on this, but in words generally. Uh, w- when you read lexicons, all they've done is they've gone through every reference and looked it up and worked out what it means from every reference. And uh, when you read a commentary, they've just picked up what the lexicon said, the commentary said. But there's nothing to stop you actually looking for yourself. And doing the exercise of going through every reference to Euling into mind, Euling and just each of the kinds of references that are there acquaints you to what the scriptures are saying in a way that is refreshing and different to just picking up a book which says the word means this. Uh, dictionaries are descriptive and the describer is not always right. Uh, often they're wrong. And These kinds of smaller references are important, but certainly the majority of the references to gospel, in all its forms, verb or noun, is about big political pronouncements of kings and kingdoms. Now, let me ask you what September the 23rd means (coughs) to you. Does anybody tell me what September 23rd means to them? It might be your birthday. That is an announcement we can now make. You're safe. We won't be singing happy birthday to you because we won't be here on the 23rd. So, you don't do it. But what does, maybe your child's birthday, maybe, what does September 23 mean to you? Wedding anniversary. Wedding anniversary? Good. I think that's much more important than, than, than birthdays. To get another birthday, you've just got to hang around. To get a wedding anniversary, you've got to do something. You know, you've got to keep telling your wife you love her and actually... Loving her as well. <laughs> telling her. <laughs> what else? Anybody else, Scott? Hi. Now that is big news. Okay. It was the birthday of the first emperor of Rome. Augustus Caesar was born on the 23rd of September, 63 BC lived to 14 AD, and he ruled from 27 BC through to 14 AD when he died. And he is the man who brought unity to the whole Roman Empire, which in those days stretched all the way across to Britain, up the Hadrian's Wall and the Reds. Uh, at its height in his reign in 9 BC, the Greeks of Asia, over whom he ruled, proclaimed a gospel. They wrote and they said that this day... August, uh, this day, 23rd of September. It is a day which we may justly count as equivalent to the beginning of everything. If not in itself and in its own nature, at any rate, in the benefits it brings. Inasmuch as it has restored the shape of everything that was failing and turned into misfortune and has given a new look to the universe at a time when it would gladly have welcomed destruction if Caesar had not been born to the common blessing of all men. Whereas the providence which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human living by giving to it Augustus, by filling him with virtue, 
for doing the work of a benefactor among men and by sending in him, as it were, a saviour for us and those who come after us to make wars to cease, to create order everywhere. And whereas the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings in, at that point it says, of the gospel that has come to men through him, Paulus Maximus, the proconsul of the province, has devised a way of honouring Augustus, hitherto unknown to the Greeks, which is that the reckoning of time for the course of human life should begin with his birth. The proclamation of this euangelion, you see, this gospel, doesn't really herald a birth. It's more than that. It's the birth of a new era. It's the proclamation of a message that is itself the euangelion. It's the salvation of mankind. I mean, when you read that, you can kind of crush up Augustus and put in Jesus, can't you? In fact, their gospel failed because in this room not one of you knew the 23rd of September, whereas all of us would know the 25th of December, which most likely wasn't his birthday, but never mind. <laughs> we know what we celebrate because we celebrate everything as before Christ or Anno Domini in the year of the Lord, not before Augustus and after Augustus. It actually was a gospel, it was a failed gospel, but you hear what a gospel is in that, don't you? It's the proclamation of an event, of something happening that not only is an event that you're telling people about, but it's of such magnitude, it's of such great importance that life in the future will all be different. Gospels always carry promise in them, promise of a different world. There was a gospel proclamation just recently in Britain a 41-cannon salute in Green Park, and then two evangelists <coughs> walked out and proclaimed the gospel. They did it in writing, actually. They put a little poster up in the right place for the world to see, which said, Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Cambridge was safely delivered of a son at 4.24pm today. Her Royal Highness and her child are both doing well. And then it was signed by four official witnesses to the truth. And then 61 cannons went off along the Thames. That's a gospel. It's a proclamation of an event that's happening that, that is of huge significance and importance for it holds the future. Uh, what is going to happen? This little baby boy, should he live? And should Australia not vote for a republic? will one day become our king. And that is seen to be an important thing. That is seen to be a significant thing. Certainly will become the British king if such time should continue. Now, if that's what a gospel is, what is the gospel? The word as a noun or as a verb is all over the New Testament except in John's writing. He doesn't use it. And in different contexts, Different wording is used as the content of the gospel, but that there was a proclamation of a new age, a new king, is quite clear throughout the whole New Testament. And this gospel is called the gospel of God, and it's called the gospel of Christ. Both in the sense that it is God's gospel, Christ's gospel, and in the sense that it's the gospel about God. It's the gospel about Christ. It, it's not a human gospel, but it is God's gospel about God. 
Christ's gospel about Christ. It was invented and delivered and explained. It is God who made it, not humans. Not that there are two gospels. It's only one gospel. And not that because we have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, there are four gospels. That's In fact, the word gospel is not really used of written proclamation. It's used really of oral proclamation. And there is only one, and the New Testament is adamant that there's only one. You can think of the opening of Galatians chapter 1, where he says, if someone comes and preaches to you another gospel, not that there is another gospel, but there is only one gospel, and it is pervertible, it's distortable, because if they've changed it, it's not the true gospel. There is one message, the gospel. And this gospel of God by virtue of being the gospel of God, is powerful. So Romans chapter 1 speaks of its power. It creates faith in Philippians 1. It brings salvation in 1 Corinthians 15. It brings judgment in Romans chapter 2. It reveals God's righteousness in Romans uh, chapter 1. It brings the fulfilment of hope in Colossians 1. It intervenes in the lives of men and women and creates churches. It cannot be fettered by human chains in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It produces new birth and rebirth in 1 Peter 1. It brings peace in Ephesians 2 and 6. It draws together those who are near and those who are far off into one. It unites Jew and Gentile together in Ephesians 3. It brings salvation in Ephesians 1. It's brought life and immortality to light in 2 Timothy chapter 1. This gospel is is a gospel, it's a life-changing, world-changing gospel. You could say, well, that's because these events have happened, but no, it's not just the events that happen, it's the proclamation that makes the events have the effect that they have. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of mankind. And we see the power of the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So let me remind you of Firstly, the context of what we're dealing with. Paul has a troubled relationship with the Corinthian church. He planted the church through his evangelism. But the church that he planted has rejected him. And so what you've got to read when you're reading the Corinthian correspondence is why is the church that came into existence through the ministry of the Apostle Paul rejecting the Apostle Paul? What, what is it that has happened that could lead to such a thing? And my brothers and sisters, uh, if you've been Christian ministry for a very long time, you'll discover that it's not so rare or unusual. Uh, it is all too common. Uh, one of my friends who trained in America was uh, greatly helped by his uh, lecturer there in seminary who taught him uh, the two-word message of Christian ministry that all ministers need to hear. That is, sheep bite. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, show the problem that he is facing. See, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel, even though it was the door was open for me to the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. There's a jump between verse 13 and verse 14 that's a little hard to explain. Verse 13, he's distressed and anxious and worried. Verse 14, he's triumphant and and thanking God and praising God. What happens between verses 13 and verse 14? Turn the page, go to chapter 7, verse 5. For even when we came to Macedonia, 
Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted in every turn, fighting without and fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was, we were, uh, he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. That happens between chapter 2 verse 13 and chapter 2 verse 14, but he forgets to tell us. Right? Remember, we're listening to one side of a telephone conversation. You know that dreadful business of being in the bus and the person behind you is talking on their mobile and you wish they weren't and you can only hear their side and their side sounds awful and you wonder what's the other side and what the responses are, what's the background. 2 Corinthians is like that. We're just listening to one side, but you can keep hearing something of what happens in the other side and this is an occasion of it. Because of Titus arriving and saying, no, the Corinthians have done what you've asked them to do in your previous letter and they still love you, Paul's whole mood shifts and he talks of the, of, with thanksgiving of the triumphal procession of which he is part. Because God is leading him from Turkey across to Macedonia and on around the world. God is leading him like a conquering general leads his troops through the streets. And it's kind of like a ticker tape parade, you know, that we have at the end of the Olympics, should our Olympians win in a bit. Um, and so we get them to come along and we rip up paper, tax receipts, things like that, and throw them out in the street. Well, that's the closest we have to this concept of the conquering general leading the troops. But they did. They not only led the troops, but they led their captives. They led the booty, all the kinds of things that they had captured and the, the treasures that they had. They'd all be led in this great procession through the streets as they went from town to town, wending their way back to Rome, displaying their might, their power, in pomp and splendour, but also humiliating the defeated, making the strong political point for anybody who wanted to revolt against Rome, you too could be back there behind the soldiers in chains being led as a slave, as a captive. And so with music and banners and triumphal processions, these captives, these slaves would have to show off the victory of the general. Now this is the striking analogy that Paul is using to explain his life. God is leading him as a new slave of Christ in the Christian procession. God is leading his people in victory. The battle has been won by God with Christ's death and resurrection. And so he's now proclaiming to the world by this procession the victory that is Christ's. We are like slaves wafting out incense of the victory of Christ as the news of this conquest spreads across the world in our message we don't look all that impressive. Very unimpressive is the slave in the captive train. We don't look impressive. We're part of the victor's trophies. But we're sending out the message of the great king and of the new age and of the coming of the kingdom. The gospel of Christ, as it's called in verse 15. The aroma to the saved and to the perishing. To those who are being saved, it's the sweet smell of success. To those who are perishing, it is the terrible stench of death. And of course, that was what processions were like. If you were on the Roman side, 
It's terrific. We've been liberated by the terrible people that have been conquered us and we're now free and we can cheer and shout. But if you were against the Romans, well, then you didn't like going to the procession. You, it, it stunk in your nose. You get that with the election in this last week or so. In this morning's paper, I think it was, somewhere I read, uh, there's a new Facebook page which says, uh, we hate uh, uh, Tony Abbott. Uh, it's already got 150,000 friends associated with it and there's a whole string of all the things that Tony Abbott has done wrong since he's been Prime Minister. <laughs> you know, if you're on the losing side, the very name stinks in your nostrils. If you're on the winning side, this is terrific. This is the great moment. This is the victory. I had a great day on Saturday. I support four football teams, all of which won. Every one of them. Four out of four. It's one of the best Saturdays I've had in a long, long time, let me tell you. Especially some of my family members support the others. It was sweet itself. They haven't rung me up yet. Uh, and uh, if I was to ring them, you see the difference of feel for the winner and the loser. It's massive. And so we are like the smell going out to the crowds. To those who have been saved, sweet perfume of life itself. To those who are being lost, we've become the stench of death. Well, who's sufficient for that kind of thing? That's the question that's arised at the end of chapter 2, verse 15. See, we're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Who's competent for such a task as going about with the gospel bringing life to people, bringing death to people. The answer you would expect in all humility is, well, I'm not really competent to do that, I couldn't manage it. That's the answer you expect him to give, and it's the answer that you would expect you should give. But Paul says, I am competent for the task. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency is in God, For God is at work in us, so chapter 3, verse 6, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. God has made us, brothers and sisters, competent for this task. That is to be ministers of the new covenant, the New Testament, contrasted to the old. And the contrast comes with a series of contrasts between the two. Profound contrast because, as we've just read in verse 6, it's the Spirit who gives life, the letter of the law kills. Look at the contrast in verse 3 of chapter 3 on that. It's not written with ink, but it's written with the Spirit. It's not on tablets of stone, but on the tablet of the human hearts. Look at the contrast of glory in verses 7 and 8. The letters on stone came with glory, but the ministry of the Spirit comes with much more glory. Because verse 9, Moses' ministry is a ministry of condemnation, but Jesus' ministry is a ministry of righteousness. And so verses 10 and 11, Moses' ministry is transitory, overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus, while Jesus' ministry is permanent. Now, they're both glorious. You need to note that. It's just that the new covenant is more glorious. In fact, it's so much more glorious 
that the glory of the old cannot compete with it. The glory of the old has come to an end. The glory of Jesus doesn't compare with the glory of Moses, it's more a contrast than a comparison. For Jesus so far outshines Moses. I like the illustration of the moon and the sun in this regard. You see, when there is no moon on a night, it's very, very dark. But on a full moon, why, the moon shines so bright you can see where you're going. You can even read by the moonlight. Yet, its light is not real. Its light is only the reflection of the sun. And when the sun comes out, the moon and its light totally recedes. So that you can't read by the... It's irrelevant. You wouldn't know whether you're reading by the moonlight because the moonlight is of just no significance. But yet you can see the moon sometimes during the daytime, can't you? You've got to look around to see where it is, but suddenly you can look up. There is the moon. It's still there, up there in the sky. It just is of no significance now that the sun has come. So it is with Moses and the Lord. When we lived in the darkness of night, before the Lord Jesus Christ came, before the Saviour of the world arrived, Moses was the brightest light humanity had, showing us God, showing us how to live God's way, showing us his plans and his purposes. But once the sun came, then the sunshine of the Son of God overwhelmed the moon of Moses and its light, so that you can hardly see it. However, if you fail to have ever seen how glorious Moses is, you will fail to see how really glorious Jesus is. Now remember the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus appeared transfigured in glory with Moses and Elijah on either side, the two great Old Testament prophets, in all glory. And the voice from heaven comes, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In the face of the two greatest Old Testament prophets, listen to my son. But there's even more. Now we have Jesus' letters. For by his spirit, he is writing his letters in the world. Uh, People think Jesus never wrote anything, but that's not true. Jesus does write, and he continues to write. He's writing today. I hope he's written on you. (coughs) Because his letters are not the normal letters on paper in envelopes, nor the electronic letters in our computers, but the spiritual letters of changed hearts. The hearts move to obey the gospel of God. Move to obey God's law. Moses' message was for the people, but it was hidden from them. He put a a veil over his face because of their fear. And they put a veil over their hearts, not wanting to hear what he has to say. But Jesus writes his letters on our hearts. Opening our hearts, opening our minds to hear to receive, to respond in joyful obedience. Now the gospel is not an external imposition of rules and regulations, but an internal transformation of the person. The gospel word is powerful. It changes people. And as it changes people, it changes communities. And as it changes communities, it changes society. And as it changes society, it changes the world. It is the power of God at work. For it is the Spirit who, under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ, is changing you by the words that are spoken to you through the mouths of his speakers. The difference the Spirit of Jesus makes 
is not putting new clothes on an old person, but putting a new person within old clothes. And thus we live with unveiled freedom. For while the Jews still read Moses, they read him with a veil over their hearts and over their minds. Only Moses, when he turned from the people, went into the tent to hear the Lord's voice speaking. Only then did he, and he only removed the veil. And so in chapter 3, verse 16, we read that when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. For when anybody now turns to the Lord Jesus and finds in his death forgiveness for our sins, in his resurrection new life, the veil is removed so that the law of God no longer condemns us. The law of God no longer is something forbidden and fearful. The law of God no longer brings death, but is as the psalmist knew, reviving the soul, making lies the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, more to be desired than gold, sweeter than honey. For when we turn to the Lord, we turn to the Lord Jesus, who by his Spirit rules the world today. For the Lord is the Spirit, and it is the Spirit of the Lord who gives us freedom. Freedom from death, freedom from condemnation, freedom to live, freedom for righteousness, freedom from fear, fear of God and his word. The people of Israel were afraid of God, and they didn't want to hear what he had to say. But we are now free to listen. For we know God is our Father, and are bold and confident to come into his presence, into his joy, so that we could hear what he has to say. And so we're free to be changed and to be changing. For as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see him in his glory, the word of God who was full of grace and truth, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world, the Son of Man who is sitting at the right hand of God in all power and authority, coming with the clouds of heaven, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests for his Father and God. As we see Jesus in all his glory, we are changed and being changed, transformed, metamorphosed from one degree of glory. We've changed from, from the grub to the butterfly. But our transformation is one internally, internally changed into his image to become like the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. And this change is a gradual one. It doesn't finish in his lifetime. Only when Jesus returns will we be fully transformed into the likeness of his glorious body. But for now, we are being changed. We are changing from one degree of glory to another, in a slow and steady alteration to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's the Spirit who is at work within us, bringing about this change, as gradually his fruit is seen in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Slowly the Spirit of God is making us into different people, into new people, into reshaped, reformed people, people who are becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus himself. And therefore, says Paul, we don't lose heart. 
Consistently, he says in this passage, we don't lose heart. Why doesn't he lose heart? Well, because we have a gospel that changes people. We have been changed by it ourselves, and it changes others. We have the mighty, powerful word of God that we are working at. My brothers and sisters, it's when we lose confidence in the gospel. It's when we lose confidence that what we're saying is going to actually make a difference to the hearer. That we then head off into immorality, into heresy, and into the latest whiz-bang silver bullet that's going to solve all our church's problems. We must keep confidence that it is the gospel and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this proclamation, it is this announcement of the new age that is actually going to change the hearers. Their life will never be the same once they hear this message. And it's not just it won't be the same initially, it will continue to be changed as we continue to tell the word of God. For as people turn to the Lord Jesus through his word, they become more and more like the Lord Jesus. As we listen to the word of God, day by day, hour by hour, week by week, as we keep turning to the word of God, we too are being changed by the Spirit of God to become more and more like Jesus. So what is the Gospel? Well, you see it there in chapter 4 where he talks about the God of this age blinding people's minds from seeing, at the end of verse 4, the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There are many ways in which you can explain the Gospel, you can summarise the Gospel, you can give an account of the Gospel. But here in this context, in the context of the incredible power of God's word changing and transforming us, it is described in terms of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It's described in terms of the light. That as God by his word said, let there be light, and there was light, so God by his word shines his light into the hearts of people and transforms them. The word of God is powerful. Powerful to create the world. Powerful to recreate sinners. That's an extraordinary thing, you see. That word by which the world was created is that word which is in my mouth to speak to others. I must never lose heart. I cannot lose heart in the exercise of the ministry of the gospel when I believe that what I am saying has the same creative power and energy that led to the world being created. Psalm 33 verse 6, you see, by the word of the Lord were the heavens created, the the world by the breath of his mouth. That word is what we're proclaiming. And that brings light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Because people see Jesus 
in the gospel that is being preached. And as you turn to Jesus, so you are being turned into more and more like him. Like Moses, you see, every time Moses went in and talked to God face to face, he came back shining. So much so that people were terrified, so he covered it up. But people who are being reborn by the gospel of Jesus are not terrified. They want more. And so we don't put a veil over the face of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The veil is removed as we look more and more through his word at this great gospel. But what is this gospel? Well, you see there in verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves. We're not the gospel. But Jesus is the gospel. Jesus Christ as Lord. There you go. There's a four-word summary of the gospel. Of course, summaries are summaries. You've got to unpack it. Who's this Jesus? Who's this Christ? What is this Christ? What does it mean as? And what does it mean? The easiest word in that is as. The rest of it you've got to unpack at considerable length, haven't you? Jesus Christ as Lord. But notice... Notice, though we don't preach ourselves, we do preach ourselves. Ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And here is, here is wussy translations. Because the word's not servant, it's not diakonos. The word's slave. It's doulos. Now, slaves is such a pejorative word with such connotations about it that we don't want to use that word so we go for servants but servants misses the point we're not free employees of the Lord Jesus Christ we're bonded slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ the ESV has put down and I think they most likely would be better if they stuck it into the main text rather than as the footnotes we are bond servants well that's a better word we are bonded to the Lord Jesus Christ And because we're servants, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, we become, under his direction as our Lord, slaves of the people to whom we are ministering. So we are your slaves for Jesus' sake. We're part of the procession, you see, of the Lord. Unpack the meaning of the word Lord. And you'll see lords always have slaves. A lord that doesn't have a slave is not much of a lord. Any lord worth his weight will have a slave. It's like saying a rich man who doesn't own a motor car. You know? I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Unless you're so rich that you actually don't need a motor car. Everyone gives you lifts. But, you know, a slave is a multi-purpose house unit. We, we all need slaves. I mean, how do you get your washing up done? How do you get your vacuuming done? How do you, they're slaves. That's what they're there for. And we are the slaves being led in the great triumphal procession through the world. And in our, what what we are by our very nature is the declaration of the victory of the new age that has come. But as slaves, we are also being transformed into the likeness of our new master. And as we proclaim this message to people, they will hate us. And they will love us. That's what's going to happen. And if nothing is happening, I suspect we're not actually making the message known one way or another. So, what is the gospel? Uh, It's this huge proclamation of the New Age Cup. 
that we ourselves are engaged in under the Lord. And as his slaves, we are now serving the people with the message of salvation. But his victory is of such enormous importance that the message of his victory changes the lives of the people around about them, giving new promise, new hope, transformation, as it has changed our lives and is ongoingly changing our lives. And when you understand what we are doing, you won't give up. You won't lose heart. You won't be surprised in opposition. You'll press on. Because that's what's expected. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for your victory through him and that cross and resurrection. We thank you for calling us into your kingdom and making us your servants, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use us to bring glory to the Lord Jesus by being transformed ourselves more and more into his likeness and by proclaiming his victory to the ends of the earth that other men and women might be called into his kingdom and that his kingdom might be declared to every man, woman and child that's alive today, that all may know that Jesus is king, we ask in his name.